0: Paramedic 43, District 1, Engine 51, response, cardiac arrest. Hello everybody. Welcome again to another edition of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. This is Dr. Casey Patrick and joining me today on this episode is one of our in-charge paramedics, Wesley Hall. Good morning, Doc. And a lot of our best episodes, we've talked about this before, come from those hallway conversations. And it was probably two or three weeks ago and Wes was walking through the office and said, hey doc, I got a cool case. And it indeed was a really amazing case. Uh, It stemmed from some questions that Wes had actually sent Dr. Dixon and I related to some protocols that we'll get to. Uh, We've got some video that we'll link on the podcast show notes so you guys can take a look at some de-identified shots from the case. So it really is a full circle case that involved care here in the county. One of our in-charge medics here with clinical questions made me think. And when we got to that point, we said, hey, I'll bet everybody else would like to hear about this too. Um, So let's not give it away too much here in the
1: intro, Wes. How did the call come out what were your thoughts in route? Let's start there. Yeah, sure. So uh, my normal partner and I were headed back from the hospital. We had just dropped off a patient and uh, we were talking about that call when another one popped up on the computer there in the truck. Uh, it came out, once the notes all populated in, it just came out as a priority three, so a non-emergency back pain. Uh, and it was an elderly person, elderly female with back pain for three days. So typical type call that we get almost every day, if at least once a tour, probably. Um, so <coughs> we were talking on the way to the call and you know, it's, what could it be? It, you know, maybe a chronic back pain that's flared up an exacerbation <coughs> or uh, kidney stones, UTI, maybe a trauma or a fall. Those are probably the most common things we get. Um, of course, in the back of our heads, we're thinking, you know, of course, this one would be like a big MI or something, something crazy to check. But we'll see whenever we get there and go through our questioning. So that's, I mean, that's really a,
0: a point number one is that, this came out as run of the mill. And I always, when talking to the medics, make it clear that, you know, uh, by trade, I'm an emergency physician, I'm not a paramedic. But one of the things that's similar about your job and my job is that run of the mill back pain is, is a part of our world. And so, you know, even in those back pain patients, we have to make a differential. And you thought about, you know, acute on chronic, radiculopathy, sciatica, kidney stone, maybe trauma fall with contusion or a compression fracture. I mean, it's not that you didn't go down the list, but there was nothing that was terribly alarm bell sounding about this case from the call notes or from, you know, your dispatch determinant or anything like that. So you arrive on scene, obviously the tables are going to turn at some point, or we wouldn't be talking about this case on the podcast. So when did your antenna start to perk up? When did you start to sense that Maybe this wasn't acute on chronic
1: or a
0: contusion or a strain,
1: right? So, we had fire department first responders running with us and they got on scene first. Um, And ears really pinned back once we heard some of the history, which I'll get to in a second. But um, you know, walking into the house, uh, you know, the patient was already standing up, walking around the house, and you know, you look sick or not sick, the patient really didn't look really that sick you know across the room there was no respiratory distress weren't clutching chest back uh you know skin was pink and warm and dry and i'm like okay well what's going on and uh, she says well my back's kind of hurting and this was kind of a very typical case of a patient trying to play off their symptoms uh, because she was like well i've been working in the yard the last few days and i think i just strained something in my back because my back's been hurting for a few days i'm like okay well you start going through the history and uh, whenever you see some of the things pop up, you're like, well, maybe this isn't just a strained muscle or something from working in the yard. So that's a,
0: an, um, let's take that as point two. We'll 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 dive off a bit and talk about the concept of premature closure. And if you went into this case and you said this is going to be a non-acute, non-emergent, benign condition, and you let her guide you without asking a few more questions, you could have easily said strain working in the yard, patient looks well, no big deal. Let's go to the hospital, man. And honestly, I would say in my practice, I've done that more times than I could count. And the idea of premature closure is that you hear the diagnosis or the answer that you want to hear, the differential, the result that creates an ending, a closing for what's easiest for you. "Ah, This is just a strain, let's go, man. Um, And so you run with that without doing the rest of your exam, without doing the rest of your history, without talking to family, without looking at the med list, those sort of things. And so kudos to y'all for asking a couple more questions because you eventually got to some history and some physical exam findings that changed your course. Talk about those.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So the fire department did a really good job before we got there getting a history and getting a set of you know or getting a list of medications stuff like that so we worked off of what they got um so the patient had a history of hypertension uh uncontrolled i asked i started asking questions about it and i said are you on any medications and he said no i used to be or she said i used to be on medications you know Metropol low starting a handful but they i didn't like the way they made me feel so i just stopped taking them so i said so you're not on anything right now you just quit taking your medications and she said yeah and i said well okay that makes sense because your blood pressure is up in the 230s so probably probably not the best and then i said you know the firefighters here said you mentioned a history of aneurysm i was like where's that aneurysm and she said well it's a aortic aneurysm i was like okay well this definitely isn't <laughs> this very well could not be a kidney stone or a back st- back sprain so she was already walking towards us so i said well, we'll go ahead and sit on the stretcher here let's get some vitals." Um, checked blood pressures in both arms. Uh, they were off about 15 to 20 points left to right. I can't remember which one was uh, more hypertensive, but there was a difference. Heart rate was fine. It was in the 70s. Sats were fine. Uh, like I said, respirs were fine. Lungs were clear. All that kind of stuff. Uh, radial pulses were good in both arms. So I said, let's get out of the heat. Let's just go into the truck. Do kind of do a more focused secondary exam. So while I'm getting a 12 lead, my partner's getting an IV, um, and again I go through I'm going through history at that point getting temperatures sugars all that kind of stuff and uh I start going through a more physical exam and already had the shirt unbuttoned doing the 12 leads so I'm like well let me let me feel your stomach real quick so I press lightly and uh I really didn't have to feel it as I much I could uh, look and see the hand pulsing with with the abdomen that's just you know now your
0: deal is is more sealed Let's back up a little bit because you hit some points in some exam slash vital sign specifics that I want to address for the listeners. And this is, I wouldn't call it a pet peeve of mine, but I feel like when we use certain terminology, sometimes words get mixed up. We've talked about this delineation, differentiation on the podcast before. And that is when we talk about the concept of aortic disease in general. And aortic diseases are, there are multiple uh, the, the big ones that we think about when we talk about emergent chest pain and emergent abdominal pain, though, are two different pathologies, two different, you know, pathophysiologies, two different really anatomic emergencies. And when you talk about upper extremity blood pressures, we're thinking more about thoracic aortic dissection, tear in the wall of the aorta. And when that happens, if that blocks outflow of our vessels coming off the aortic arch, then we can have unequal blood pressures in the upper extremities. And so if your blood pressure is 220, 210, 200, and you've got a 15 millimeter of mercury difference, you're under really under 10% there. So probably not uh, something that would ring an alarm bell worth checking and watching. We know that you can have thoracic aortic dissection and not have unequal blood pressure, so it doesn't rule anything in or out, but I definitely would put that on my list of things to consider. Now, you moved caudally, moved southbound, and you looked at her abdomen. You barely palpated her abdomen, and it was bounding like a bass drum, and you knew then your diagnosis. You knew that this wasn't a thoracic dissection. This was a, an abdominal aortic aneurysm or a AAA. and AAA pathology, AAA risk factors are a little bit different than thoracic aortic dissection risk factors, and we'll come back to those uh, in a bit when we talk about, you know, some of the some of the basics, but at that point, now you've got a a patient with elevated blood pressure, you've got what's for all intents and purposes a time-sensitive emergency, a vascular emergency, so you've gone from, you know, 180 degree swing from I was working in the yard and my my back hurt a little bit too. No, this is more than that. So where did your mind go at that point? What decisions did you make acutely and kind of describe to the listeners where your mind progression went from that point when you saw her bounding, you know, pulsatile abdomen, um, kind of into the ED, take it, take it that route the next probably five to 10 minutes. Sure.
1: So, you know, let's just say that Maybe this even was a, the, she did have a kidney center UTI that really wasn't the concern at that point. You can have two things at once, but I'm like, all right, so we have a hypertension, an already diagnosed AAA years ago. Uh, she was diagnosed four years ago and hadn't had any treatment, hadn't had any follow up from it, so we don't know how big this thing is. Um, so we already have a AAA, we have hypertension, back pain radiating into the abdomen, and a very large pulse of mass. Um, this is probably what we're looking at. We did a 12-lead to make sure there wasn't any sort of MI. So at this point, we've checked all the things that we can check, and we know kind of, okay, this is, like you said, a time-sensitive emergency. So we had an IV established. Uh, the patient, you know, said she was in 10 out of 10 pain. So I'm like, all right, well, let's get some fentanyl on board, which, you know, a drip fentanyl, confirmed with my partner. He hopped up front while I was administrating it, and I said, just go ahead and run us in lights and sirens. Uh, just get us there. We weren't too far from the hospital, but red lights and traffic, you know, we can get there at least a little bit sooner because with that pressure, I wouldn't want that thing to rupture uh, before we could at least be inside the hospital. So, um, yeah, we gave fentanyl for pain management uh, during transport, and then we started our uh, secondary assessment and talking to the patient on the way there. Talk a little bit about your pre-hospital notification because this was a, a, a stellar move from my standpoint
0: because when we talk about pre-hospital alerts and, you know, EMS care, it's reserved almost exclusively, 99.99% of the time for STEMIs, for strokes, for traumas. You know, some of us have sepsis alerts. Some folks delineate between a stroke alert and a elbow or a large vessel occlusion alert, but really stroke, STEMI, trauma, plus or minus sepsis, you know, cardiac arrest really kind of falls into that STEMI, cardiac arrest. We don't really think about a AAA alert. That's not one that we do very often, but tell the listeners your mindset on, you know, how you prepared your report and sort of how that tied into the nurse reception when you got to the hospital, because that was an interesting piece of the story for me.
1: Sure. So uh, we use an app on our iPad to alert the hospital. We don't do radio communications anymore. Um, So, and then there's a box in there that we can free type kind of what the chief complaint is and any uh, pertinent findings. So I'm pretty sure the first thing I put in the uh, free text box was possible triple-A diagnosed, hypertensive, you know, non-controlled, and then we put the rest of the vitals in there. So just put it straight out what I think it is and maybe perk their ears up a little bit to somebody look at it and be like, oh, my God, somebody's coming in with a triple A. But what did the nurse say? Yeah, walked in and walked up to the nurse, and I was like, hey, I got your triple A here. And she's like, well, how do you know it's a triple A? I was like, well, because of X, Y, Z. Uh, told me they had one, and uh, you can see their belly bounding. So, And the doc was there, correct, mm-hmm. at that, by that time. It sounds like the doc's ears perked, maybe even
0: quicker than the nurses. So you guys went straight to, straight to cat scan. Straight to cat scan. Didn't take very many images to figure out what this uh, patient had. She had a enormous check. The link in the show notes, uh, AAA. So what did the doc do? What What were the next steps from? Because you were there for the scan. You were there for sort of the the uh, the next steps in this case. Thankfully, I thought that was a
1: a really awesome piece for y'all to get to see what did what did she do yeah so we took the patient to ct and they did a ct without contrast first and then a cta right afterwards and we didn't even have to get to the cta and the er doctor was already on the phone with radiology calling vascular surgery uh, for one of the downtown hospitals uh, to get this patient in
0: so talk to radiology talk to vascular surgery who was third on that list the the surgeon surgeon and then and then helicopter correct Yeah. So, so in the span that we were there before we even, you know, and for almost all vascular emergencies, we want IV contrast to rule out active extravasation or active bleeding. And this patient eventually got that, but the lesion was so large that we didn't even need the IV contrast to see it, which, which can happen. And so in the time span that we've given report, taking this patient to CAT scan, Wes and his partner here, the emergency doc, talk with radiology, talk with the vascular surgeon, and talk with a helicopter crew for transfer from Montgomery County down to the med center. A lot of these complex vascular cases uh, sometimes can be cared for here in the county. Sometimes uh, these are complex enough to require, you know, really quaternary care type uh, situations. And here in Houston, that's the med center. Big, gigantic, enormous, uh, dangerous, life-threatening AAA excellent recognition and management by you know really kudos to the fire crew as well for you know digging that piece up for you this is uh, we'll talk about therapeutic momentum in a bit but this is truly a case of multiple spots where therapeutic momentum uh, worked in this patient's favor and for a, for an excellent outcome so I'm going to pause for a second from the case and I'm going to talk a little bit about some AAA basics and address the question originally that you sent Dr. Dixon uh uh, via email because it was a good question. All good questions require a Google search. So I had to dig a little bit, some MRAP, some some textbooks, some vascular surgery recommendations uh, to get there. But let's back up and let's talk about abdominal aortic aneurysms in general. An aneurysm is a bulge in the wall of uh, an artery, abdominal aorta being where these occur. Um, all three layers of the artery are involved in a true aneurysm, the intima, the media, the adventitia. The normal aorta is approximately two centimeters uh, in diameter anything greater than three centimeters is a triple A. Most that rupture are greater than five centimeters. I'll give you the end of the story and the, uh, the punchline. Uh, this triple uh, A in Wes's case was uh, greater than 11 Centimeters, eleven
1: point four or something like that.
0: I'm not sure I've ever seen an eleven-centimeter AAA. So you now, sir, at the podcast table, hold the record for the largest AAA that you've taken care of. So I'll get you a trophy or something there for that. Go. Classic presentation of AAA is really exactly like this. Oftentimes, back pain, uh, flank pain radiates to the abdomen. Um, radiates sometimes, you know, flank to back. These can definitely be confused with renal stones throughout my training from really from medical school to emergency medicine residency uh, there's been an oral board or an oral case or a test question on almost every exam that I've ever taken that presents an elderly patient like this one uh, in their 60s or in their 70s with flank pain radiating to the back and the, the catch is trying to fool you into a premature closure on a kidney stone diagnosis. In this one we could have prematurely closed on Trauma, strain, kidney stone, lots of things. Because she did what a lot of patients do, and that is they don't want to worry. You know, they want to minimize their symptoms because they don't want to have emergencies. Patients don't think like us. We think, what could the worst possible thing be? That's our job. We're downers at parties. We're negative Nellies. That's 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 what we get uh, trained to do. And patients are the exact opposite. They don't want it to be bad. They don't want it to be an emergency. They want it to be. Indigestion. They don't want it to be a heart attack. They want it to be a strain in their back, not their AAA that they've tucked under the rug and decided to stick their head in the sand over. And, hey, listen, I'm not knocking patients. There's lots of chronic medical things that I know I need to take care of that sometimes I don't do the best job of. So that's just human nature. Um, Why do we get this confusion with AAAs and kidney stones? Well, the anatomy really helps us out. Uh, The kidneys are retroperitoneal. They're not in the peritoneal cavity. Uh, Most of the abdominal aorta is also retroperitoneal. So that sort of radiation to the flank and to the back is pretty common because they're both retroperitoneal structures. You can have pain from a AAA without rupture. So as that AAA enlarges, that pain can, can come without rupture. So that's a possibility. In this case, this AAA had ruptured, But thankfully, it was a retroperitoneal rupture, and the retroperitoneal space is much more tight and closed and has the ability to tamponade than the intraperitoneal space. So these are contained ruptures is the term that's used versus free rupture. So a free rupture of this 11 centimeter plus AAA would have allowed all of that, all of her blood volume to spill into the abdominal cavity, much more open, can contain liters and liters of blood. So those are the patients that have really seconds to minutes and then oftentimes exsanguinate and die versus this situation where it ruptured posteriorly into the retroperitoneum, caused that back pain, that kidney stone-like pain, and did bleed, but it bled into an enclosed space. Luckily, she tamponade. Physiology uh, occurred and was stable enough to last for repair. Who do these form in? They form in folks with vascular disease and vasculopaths, people with atherosclerosis, hypertensive. If you remember Wes's initial blood pressure was high. I'm on losartan and metoprolol and hydrochlorothiazide and Conadine and insert all the blood pressure medications that she's not taking. Uh, diabetics, smokers. So really, the patients that you would be worried about coronary artery disease and MIN—that's your AAA patient, your vascular pass. About one to two percent of patients, fifty to eighty, will have a AAA. So it's not terribly uncommon. Um, ruptured, free rupture AAA's have a ninety percent mortality. So this lady was very lucky very very lucky definitely hanging by a proverbial thread so that's just some just some background into triple a's let's let's take into some of the ems considerations and get to, to Wes's question um and before we get to the question you know this is one where i think folks could say like well we gave some fentanyl and there's not really much for us to do here from an EMS standpoint. And I would argue that is absolutely false. You know, our IV access in this case, we had good IV access. Did you get one or two? Uh, just one. You know, if I want to be picky, I would say, you know, this is a patient. If I see a bounding uh, belly, I'm probably looking for two or three, you know, um, just because massive transfusion could theoretically be on the horizon. Um, you know, monitoring mental status is key as far as, you know, the, the kicker for hemorrhagic shock from my standpoint is, you know, can the patient mintate? That's, you know, the brain's getting uh, perfused. That's a pretty good sign that everything else is probably hanging in there. A thorough exam was, was vital here for you because I don't know that it changed where you were going to go. You would probably have found the bounding belly. That's gonna be pretty hard to miss. But what really gets you to even doing an abdominal exam in the first place is thinking about what it could be besides a strain. If you walk up and you close on, she was working in her garden, you may even palpate her back a little bit. Uh, She's walking, so you know that her spinal cord is not compromised for the most part. I mean, it'd been pretty easy to put her on the stretcher, not gotten a 12 lead, and moved on without an abdominal exam. But thinking about aortic pathology, you did, bilateral upper extremity pressures you took a look at her abdomen when we were in the hallway talking about this you also mentioned her legs what did you do when you looked at her legs
1: yeah so on the way to the hospital kind of during my secondary exam took off shoes socks and checked pedal pulses and kind of the perfusion in the legs but they were still pink warm and dry sometimes of course you know you get that a- aortic aneurysm you lose some perfusion and you get some shock like symptoms down low but she didn't have any of that yeah
0: when we group these aortic disease states oftentimes we think of thoracic dissection and AAA being the only aortic diseases, but aortic thrombus and an emboli exist in this realm of aortic diseases and so if you have a you know abdominal aortic thrombus or a, you know a big embolus, that can cause dead legs or a dead leg depending on whether it's iliac or or aortic and so thinking about temperature, color, pulses, cap refill that really is a um that's an astute exam thought and to be able to report to me when you hand that over in the er hey i'm worried about a triple a but we've also got dead looking legs you know that may change am i going to do am i going to do an abdominal ct with contrast am i going to do a ct angiogram with lower extremity runoff Uh, it may change my orders so there definitely is some therapeutic momentum there that can affect the imaging choice that i make um you know the question that you asked and honestly I had my answer, but I wasn't confident in my answer. I wanted to back it up a little bit, was should we have addressed the blood pressure? That's that's how this email string and this conversation, this is where the podcast came from, was Wes said, hey, we had a blood pressure of 220. I thought it was a triple-A. What should I have done, basically? And then my question was, how in the world did you know it was a triple-A? Did the patient come with an outpatient scan? Did the patient come from, a, from an outpatient radiology clinic? Those are all the things when I thought through it and no, it was just some really good clinical history taking by y'all and the firefighters history of this uncontrolled hypertension and I could see it on my exam which is not super common so tuck this one away because this may be a career case for you Um, it's an excellent question because we talk about end organ damage and hypertensive crisis a lot the aorta is an end organ in, in a sense but we're not talking about a dissection and with aortic dissections, we we definitely want to acutely lower blood pressure. And dissections present classically with ripping, tearing chest pain that radiates into the abdomen. This wasn't this picture. This was a, this was triple A, and my answer really fell back on first do no harm. And my clinical take would be if I had this patient and they were mentating and they had a potential to exsanguinate and hemorrhage, I would not want to put a calcium channel blocker or a beta blocker on board. Our option on the trucks here at MCHD would have been labetalol. Um, we also carry esmolol, not for that indication, um, but that would be an emergency department option as well. So a couple different
1: beta blockers. Which I believe is what they, I think they did esmolol and cardine.
0: Yep, cardine would have been the other. So why would you do esmolol over labetalol? Um, and that is because Esmolol is more selective than labetalol and uh, quite a bit shorter acting. So, in other words, if you look over and the patient is pale and altered and you think, oh, snap, it's ruptured, then you turn it off and the esmolol is off. Labetalol hangs out a little longer. It has some other receptor affinity, so esmolol is cleaner and quicker. Cardine really is much uh, in the same vein as esmolol. It's a calcium channel blocker, very quick on quick off as well um so it's if you see signs of hypoperfusion or exsanguination snap that thing off and you're done um but it got me to looking you know and there's really no evidence-based answer um there's no solid vascular surgery recommendations and in fact the recommendations that i found were uh quite vague almost as vague as my answer to you and my answer to wes really was i wouldn't touch the blood pressure off the bat I would be concerned about it because i can't imagine that 230 is is good for the wall of that aneurysm but i would really want to balance that with the recommendations of my vascular surgeon who's going to be taking care of that patient so i would have a quick phone call to that person and say hey what do you think do we need cardine do we need esmolol do we need both what do you recommend knowing that i would want to address it but i wouldn't address it without a subspecialist consultation Uh, I found some recommendations um, from uh, the Vascular Surgery Academy that we'll link in the show notes that are similar. Uh, I listened to some background information on MRAP as well. If you're familiar with MRAP, it's probably the Preeminent Emergency Medicine Podcast, and it almost said the same thing. No clear answer, no evidence-based answer likely indicated in consultation with your subspecialist. so my thought in the end is you know it's probably a bad idea to give beta blockers or calcium channel blockers if there's a potential to exsanguinate without having consultant uh, recommendations on board so i think not treating it in that situation was the right move deferring that to the ed doc who's on six phones one of those being the vascular surgeons was a, was a good move addressing the pain you know, fentanyl, short-acting, uh, minimal histamine release, less hypotension that you would get with with morphine was, was the right answer. What happens when we get to the ED? So those were the EMS considerations for Wes and his partner and our first responders. What do I do when I get these patients? And honestly, it's been a while since I've had a AAA. We talk a lot about them. Uh, I don't see them terribly often in the ED. Uh, a lot of these are you know, folks that we find dead on scene, because when they free rupture, like with the 90% mortality, we only see 10% of those that rupture. Um, CT is the gold standard for uh, diagnosis, so Wes saw that with his own eyes. There is a role for point-of-care ultrasound to get a cr- quick initial look at AAAs, but they're really not great at seeing rupture. The sensitivity and specificity for diagnosing AAA rupture is poor don't wait or don't bank on hypotension because it can be late. Uh, There's a triad with AAA and as with all triads, they're uncommon clinically. Uh, Abdominal mass, low blood pressure, and back pain and having all three of those is rare. We had an abdominal mass, we have back pain, but high blood pressure instead of low. So I guess that's kind of like the meatloaf song, two out of three is not bad. Um, You want to avoid intubation at all possible. These are Uh, hemodynamically unstable folks, that makes sense. Uh, Goal systolic, probably somewhere around 100. Um, There is even some discussion and some thought that therapeutic um, hypotension, permissive hypotension may not be bad in these patients. There's not a ton of evidence base for that. That's really more of a um, expert opinion. Uh, Really, I would guide by mental status and by urine output um, if ruptured, the survival rate decreases one percent every minute after ED arrival. So the truly a time sensitive emergency. The earlier the ED can know, the better for the patient's outcome. So this is one where therapeutic momentum wins for us. This know, them knowing when you rolled through the door that that belly was bounding, and that sh- she had a history of AAA, that led them straight to the CT scanner. If you had Closed, said, not done an abdominal exam. Let's just say the shirt was buttoned, you didn't look. And you rolled in with the blood pressure of 190 after the fentanyl, came down a little bit because the patient felt a little better. And you said, I've got a sixty-eight year old lady here with abdominal and back pain for a couple days. She's been working in the yard and, you know, feels like it hurts when she bends over. Blood pressure's a little on the high side, but she's not been taking her blood pressure medicine. She was walking. She looked real good for me. Where do you think that
1: patient could have went, especially in today's world? Uh, we probably would have gone just to a regular room. And I think they were about to put us in a regular room before the doctor came over and I kind of gave the full history. And she said, no, 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 no. no. <laughs> we're, and we're going to and I would
0: argue that in some spots where I work today, that could have even been a waiting room patient, which would have been a collapse, exsanguination and waiting room death. So... Therapeutic momentum, diagnostic momentum—you teeing that patient up for the ED—and you may say, "Well, we, we gave a little fentanyl, doc. We didn't, we didn't do a, an intubation. You know, we didn't do defibrillation. We didn't do a needle finger thoracostomy. This was just as impactful and just as life-saving, if not more, than those procedures." So, kudos to you, your partner, the fire crews on this case—just really excellent. So, we're up against 30 minutes. We don't like to go too much longer than that. So. Thank you, Wes, for joining us. I'm going to wrap it up. So history and physical, while sometimes seemingly the end of what we do, the last piece may be boring, they really can be mined for gold. In this case, you hit you hit Eureka for sure. Rapid transport and early notification are for more than CVAs, STEMIs, traumas, cardiac arrests. This is one where an early notification and lights and sirens were absolutely indicated and potentially likely impacted this patient's outcome. AAA is a time-sensitive emergency, especially when they're ruptured, whether that's free rupture or contained. Once you arrive, your mortality decreases 1% per minute after ED arrival. Think of the anatomy. Think of the physiology that'll guide you to how this presentation happens. It's a retroperitoneal organ. It's going to act like a kidney stone. What are your risk factors? Well, the physiology is no different than a left main or a Uh, LAD lesion, so hypertension, diabetes, hyperlipidemia, advanced age. Uh, There's no indication for BP lowering in the EMS setting for AAA, but being aware of that and passing on that information is absolutely vital. If we know it's ruptured in the ED, we may tolerate some lower blood pressures. Uh, We're going to monitor mental status, and we're going to really make those discrete changes, those, those really delicate changes with a vascular surgeon's recommendation on board, Esmolol, Cardine. Those are uh, probably going to be the prime two, either or or both that we would use, uh, but definitely not going to make those decisions on my own as an emergency physician. So again, Wes, thanks for joining us. Thanks for everybody out there watching on YouTube, listening, wherever you get your podcast. Please follow us. If you're not following us, uh, subscribe. YouTube, subscribe, uh, iTunes, Google Play Store, SoundCloud, wherever you listen. Leave us a like or a review, as long as it's five stars. Otherwise, you might hurt my feelings, and I'm a sensitive guy. So leave us a like or a review. We like uh, like your input. We try to reply to everyone. As always, if you have ideas, podcast at mchd-tx.org. And thank you all for listening. It's... uh, we're approaching 200 episodes, and it's cool to keep doing this. Glad to have Wes on. Thanks for joining us and bringing us this, bringing us this awesome case and awesome questions. Uh, we'll be back with another episode soon. Have a great rest of your day. This podcast was brought to you by the Montgomery County Hospital in District, Texas. Production and editing by Andrew Adams. Questions or comments, which are always welcome, can be sent to podcast at mchd-tx.org. Make sure to subscribe above to keep updated to all our future casts. Music, copyright, Kevin MacLeod, and Compatech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.